You are listening to the Lotus and the Rose podcast, a Namshak publishing production featuring highlights of 10 years of interfaith conversations between Tibetan Buddhist Lama Somo and mystical Christian Matthew Fox. They've both taken less traveled spiritual paths, giving them each a fresh perspective informed by their own routes and the nature and challenges of today's world. Today's episode centers around the divine feminine. For more information on these two unique teachers, please check out the show notes of this episode, but here's a brief summary to get you started. Lama Soma was born into an American Jewish household, retaining those roots as her spiritual search eventually led to her immersion in Tibetan Buddhism and her 2005 ordination as a Tibetan Buddhist Lama. She has taught hundreds of students in the West and in Asia, is the author of the award-winning book Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling, and has dedicated herself to bringing the proven methods of Tibetan Buddhism to the modern world through the offerings of the Namshak Foundation. Matthew Fox was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years and continues as an internationally recognized voice and catalyst for mystical Christianity. He is a reinventor of worship, an author, an activist, and the force behind the Fox Institute of Spirituality and the Order of the Sacred Earth. The late historian and theologian Thomas Berry wrote that Matthew Fox might well be the most creative, the most comprehensive, surely the most challenging religious spiritual teacher in America. I first met Matthew Fox through his book, Original Blessing. I was struck both by his brilliance and by the truth of what he was saying in the book. Then I got to appreciate him on another level as a personal friend more and more as we kept talking. Just the joy of conversation and interaction and the, the adventure of inquiry that both of us are so passionate about. I appreciate working with Lama Sumo. For a lot of reasons. One is that she's down to earth. She's a mother. She's taken some big leaps, courageous leaps, in terms of leaving her own culture to learn another very different language and culture. And, of course, to immerse herself deeply into the practice and the philosophy of Buddhism. And I think she's come back with a fine capacity for articulating uh, to Westerners what uh, the wisdom of this... uh, profound tradition is all about. I'm going to speak of the Yung Chenmo, Great Mother. This is the best we can do for evoking something that's really beyond thoughts, beyond words, and beyond concepts. This is the great emptiness out of which all of the Buddhas come. She's the mother of all the Buddhas, and she's known as Prajnaparamita, perfect wisdom. She's beyond time, she's completely pure, In this context that we're speaking of, she's beyond form. So everything issues from her, and this is why she's the mother of all the Buddhas, of course. Luminosity emerges from emptiness. So then we have to see the emptiness as the great mother. This emptiness is not a vacuum. It's this pregnant emptiness that's constantly issuing forth all form. Thought forms, archetypes are forms too. And, of course, the forms that we know of as solid forms. Of course, she has been depicted over time because we're fixated in this form level. And we need something to evoke for us that sense of this great mother of all. So when I think of the divine feminine and the divine mother and and what Somo has been talking about, the idea of the great mother as being the great emptiness from which all things flow, well, there's a parallel teaching in the West, and that is the idea of the Godhead. The person who's spoken, I think, the most richly about the Godhead is Meister Eckhart, 14th century Dominican mystic. 
he spoke Latin and German. And in his languages, Latin and German, Godhead is feminine. The Godhead has been totally ignored for centuries. But this goes with the banishing of the Great Mother and of the Divine Feminine. We have to bring the balance back. And Eckhart is brilliant in his laying out of the Godhead, but it's so close to what you're talking about. He says, God is about history. Godhead is about mystery. And all things emerge from the Godhead is precisely the Christian teaching. And we return to the Godhead. God is about history. And that's why we're talking a lot about God, because we're always messed up by history. And the whole salvation history obsession in Western religion since Augustine has banished the Godhead. The image I have of the Godhead when I meditate on it is a great big cosmic mama with the universe on her lap. But it's about being, not doing. God is about acting, says Zechar, but Godhead is about being. And see, all mysticism is about being. And then our action comes from our being. Or in the East, they may say the action comes from non-action, which is to say, in Western terms, from being, from the Godhead. We return to the Godhead not only when we die, but when we meditate. Along the way, we can return to the Godhead any moment we choose. And that's when you get refreshed, and that's why you feel young again. As Zachary says, I'm younger today than I was yesterday. If I'm not younger tomorrow than I am today, I'd be ashamed of myself. That's why the Bible begins with the words in the beginning. God is always in the beginning. God is novissimus, the youngest being in the universe. And to return to that youthfulness is precisely what refreshment is. That's one dimension of the divine feminine in the West, the Godhead. And there are many. But another one in two sentences, very briefly, is, of course, the return of Gaia, the return of Mother Earth, our growing awareness of Mother Earth and what she's suffering today. As I say, the goddess has returned and she's pissed. And, of course, you brought this out, too, the fierceness of the divine feminine. The divine feminine is not just about being sweet and motherly all the time. It's also about being fierce. Yeah, I, I actually uh, told this Tibetan nun who's a friend of mine that uh, Westerners believe that the mind is in the brain. She looked at me and she said, really? And I said, yeah, we really think so. And she kind of laughed embarrassingly. <laughs> Again, that's Descartes. That's the modern era, that we've shoved the mind into the head. But the truth is that our, our spiritual course, the Jewish tradition, and our deepest Christian thinkers like Aquinas, they put the mind in the hearts, you see. And that's why what we have in the West today is lots of knowledge and no wisdom. And that's part of the return of the divine feminine. I mean, wisdom around the world is feminine. And certainly in the scriptures, Hokmah in the Jewish tradition and Sophia in the tradition of the cosmic Christ. And now the latest scholarship on the historical Jesus is that he comes from the wisdom tradition of Israel. So all that is a feminist tradition. But of course, for three or 400 years, we try to pretend there wasn't such a thing because we were so busy creating a, a patriarchal culture. You know, in listening to you, Matt, talking about the healing of the toxicity of the masculine, I think that there is a lot of toxic feminine. When you were talking about the greed, the immeasurable, unimaginable greed that is driving the society, some of it is a greed for power, the ability to do, if you take it from the Latin. And I think pride, that can be sort of a masculine version of the motivation. But I think there's also overweening desire. Now, this longing is a very real and powerful longing, which is very mixed up about what we're longing for. And isn't it interesting that uh, desire 
is the confused neurotic emotional version of the true essence of that, which is discerning wisdom. So if we just keep asking ourselves the question, what is it I really long for? Is it really to have this item from this store? Is it really about eating chocolate? Or is it really about, you know, so many of the things that we keep longing for? Even our lover. We long for our lover, but, you know, as many of us in this audience know, we've projected our own animus, which is the doorway to our spirit. We've projected that huge, powerful part of ourselves on another person. And then when they walk out of the room, we feel bereft. And we have this unbearable longing, you know, in the first throes of love anyway. There's, I think, a case where it's toxic feminine. So there needs to be healing of that. And working with an archetype such as Green Tara is very healing. And I'm just going to tell a personal story of mine because my relationship with my mother was difficult and so on. I didn't receive a lot of the nurturing that I felt I needed. And of course, there was this other longing that is beyond this lifetime, you know, that's about having wandered in millions of lifetimes since beginningless time and wanting to come back home to the great ocean of awareness, which is also a feminine archetype. The mother of archetypes, if you will, Yum Chenmo, the great mother. So I found myself somehow in the country growing my own food. We were vegetarians and we had goats for milk and I made cheese and yogurt. We had a huge garden and I put up the vegetables and made my own bread and this kind of thing. So I, with very little effort, was getting all of the food for my family. And also I was enacting the mother by giving birth to three kids and nurturing them. So this time was really a healing time for me. I did this for 11 years. So it was a significant part of my life. It was the beginning of my adult life. And I left that experience a very different person able to appreciate my own feminine and beauty and and so on and so forth, and was on the road to even healing my relationship with my mother. I was unable to say goodbye to my garden when I left. It was just too much for me, and I didn't know how to do it. I I could have used a ritual then. (laughs) Many years later, when I was taking my training in psychology, we were practicing some techniques on each other, and so somebody was practicing the technique on me, and I was being the client, and it came bubbling up. My grief at missing the garden was so profound that I I was a mess. I was completely undone, and I was just a puddle of tears for days after that. And I finally came to realize, why is this so huge for me? It's because I never said goodbye to my garden. When I didn't have the perfect mother, which none of us does anyway, and so we all have pain about that, I went to something greater, Mother Earth, and was nurtured by her. And then when I didn't have that garden anymore, by the way, I've always had small gardens since then, even in the city. (laughs) And I now live in the country again and have a bigger garden. But I've gone to something even greater. I keep going beneath it and and to a greater presence of the mother and able to really connect with it. Yum Chenmo, the great mother, Prajnaparamita, the great ocean uh, emptiness awareness out of which all appearances arise. And we're all appearances. (laughs) I just thought I should inform you. See, I think the toxic feminine is, is, is the Barbie doll, you know, among other things. I mean, you could make a litany of the toxic feminine. There's a lot of it, and I appreciate your naming it, because it's true. And especially as a man and during my generation of women's liberation and women's awakening, it's not my task to tell women what's the shadow of being women. That's for women to bring out, and women have to do that. Just as, as a man, you know, I'm trying to talk about how we can do better as males. 
And those are a few responses I have. I love the whole thing of the green Tara. It just so links up to this whole archetype, of course, of the green, the green man. She's in all of us, as you say. She's in us men as well. So for me, being whole, being a person, being a human being, is about finding that balance. Jung can call it anima sanarima, but I find that language a little, I don't know, a little weighty, a little tired. You know, I think we can come up with more colorful names, and maybe it is the green Tara and the green man, for example. This is that sacred marriage. This is coming to the sense of balance. It's yin and yang. And our culture has not been good at that. We have had a patriarchy. And that patriarchy has wounded men and women and culture itself and religion, God knows. So, you know, we're bereft. We're longing. I think we're longing for some healthy marriages. Obviously, a first step for men is to recognize the sacred feminine in women and in themselves and not resist it. For example, the Vatican. You know, the Vatican still forbids priests to use the female pronoun at the altar. I mean, that is, you know, so retro. But of course, (laughs) when the present Pope condemned me, whenever it was, 15 years ago, they had 10 objections to my work. The first was that I'm a feminist theologian. I did not know that was a declared heresy. The second was that I called God mother. See, what this is, a Rorschach test on the Catholic Church at its top at this time. Third was that I called God child. Even though I've demonstrated all these medieval mystics call God mother, even the Bible does, but not often enough. So you realize the resistance of patriarchy to women being themselves is fierce. It's still going on. So that's the first step, obviously, to any sacred marriage is that men have to get over their terror. Interestingly, the Gospel of Thomas, which is recognized as one of the earliest Christian writings that they've really uncovered in our century and the past century, has Jesus saying the following. When and if you make all twos into one, if you make the side you show like the side you hide, and the side inside like the side outside, and your higher side like your lower one, with the result that you make the man and woman in you as one, so that there is nothing more to become either male or female, when you find what really sees eyes in the place of your physical eye, and you find what really grasps and stands and walks, When you make your self-image the original image of humanity, then you will be entering the original guiding power, the king and queendom of the Holy One. That is one translation from the Aramaic of the Gospel of Tom. But it is a beautiful ancient way of talking about the yin-yang out of the Western tradition. So um, you prepare the shrine, and then as we sit down, we always begin any session with making sure that our motivation is coming from the two purposes, enlightenment for self and enlightenment for others. And enlightenment for self is not just to get ourselves out of samsara and into a place of always being happy, but we don't want to leave everybody else suffering when we go. If we're drowning in samsara, we're not going to be very good at saving anybody. But if we become enlightened ourselves, then we can do a lot of good at uh, liberating everyone. So those are the motivations that come from bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is translated sometimes as awakened heart. So we begin by invoking Guru Rinpoche, who, remember, hid this treasure, this teaching, this practice many, many years ago. Uh, And it's called the seven-line prayer. And again, the sounds of this invoke his presence. And then we pray to the lineage lamas who brought this down to us today, including our own root lama. Gochentuku Rinpoche is the only qualified lineage holder for this particular lineage in the world today. 
So we then invoke all of these lineage llamas so that we are now connected in line. And until you plug the lamp into the power source, the lamp doesn't light up. And this practice won't light up until we connect ourselves, our mind, to their minds so that the fullness of spontaneous presence comes through. Before even doing this practice, one usually goes for an empowerment with the Lama. And I have had the Tara empowerment of this lineage from Gotan Tupu Rinpoche. So that then plants the seed. It opens the mind then to this lineage and this avenue to Tara and to enlightenment. And now we set up the visualization. So then the liturgy goes like this. In the sky in front of me appears the accomplished transcendent conqueress, inseparable from my Lama. So remember, the Lama is the one who is sort of the doorway to this. And his enlightened mind is no different from hers because there's only one enlightened mind. Che, from the mandala of the hand of the protector Amitabha. Amitabha is the Buddha of limitless light, and that's the discerning wisdom. So, from the mandala of the hand of the protector Amitabha, whence arose from the eye of the Lord of the world, Avalokiteshvara, he's one of the great bodhisattvas, and from one of his tears came Tara. That's one of the stories of Tara. The swift mother, the source of an ocean of dakinis, 21 emanations of the conqueror's compassion, the glorious swift mother, the activity of all victorious ones. To my Lama, Lord Protector, inseparable from all enlightened ones, I prostrate and pray that you bestow blessings and empowerment. And prostration is taking the brain and the, the thinking mind, really the ego, the smaller mind, and bowing it down to the ground, literally touching the ground before greater mind. Some of the Jungians might think of self, but I, I think it's perhaps even beyond that. Then the next stage, now that we've set up the imagery and so on, we're engaging eyesight. We're going to engage the body and the smell even. There's Tara incense that you can burn that evokes Tara. Now we take refuge because she's presented here before us. We're consciously deciding to unplug from taking refuge in shopping and even our friends and family and so on and all the things of samsara that eventually one way or another let us down because they're just things of samsara. We're now plugging into something beyond samsara. So that's one of the purposes of refuge. It's also just consciously setting one's foot on the path of enlightenment and we want to keep renewing that on a regular basis. So there's refuge and this is combined with the stage of bodhicitta which again is giving rise to awakened heart knowing that all beings are suffering, we want to help all beings. And so that's got to be our motivation. So the liturgy continues. Namo, to the Venerable Mother, the essence of the ocean of refuge, I go for refuge until I reach the heart of enlightenment. May all sentient beings drowning in the ocean of suffering accomplish the state of the Mother Aryatara. Then we make offerings. So there's the seven-branch offering and so on. And now there's more invoking. We begin with Om Ah Hum. Om. Can you feel that vibrating up there? Ah. Om. So you see, that's very real. In the completely pure realm of Yuloku, a ray of turquoise leaves, that's her pure land. This is her palace within the pure land which I won't go into all the symbolism, but there's, of course, a huge amount of symbolism in this mandala. These four lines here are the four walls of the palace, and the four gates are in the center of each of those. The symbolism, as I said, continues. There's a, a wall of fire of protection, and within that, the blue line, just inside of that striped line, is actually 
like chain mail of Vajras, which are completely surrounding within the firewall. And then the palace is within that. And so she's in the land of turquoise leaves and, and she's sitting resplendent. And her left hand is up in protection and her right hand is giving out the signs of accomplishment, both the more common cities of flying through the air, that sort of thing, but also the ultimate cities of enlightenment. So in the completely pure realm of Yuloko, a ray of turquoise leaves in the center of an ocean filled with clouds of Samantabhadra's offerings. Samantabhadra is the uh, primordial Buddha. Dham, that's this syllable. There's actual power to call Tara just within the form of it, but also in the sound. Instantly upon recollection, I appear as the perfect form of Mother Aryatara. Clearly in the three places, forehead, throat, and heart, appear three Vajra letters, Om, Ah, and Hum. From the heart, light rays radiate to all the victorious ones, that's all the enlightened ones, and their heirs, the bodhisattvas, invoking the form of Aryatara. With 21 emanated goddesses who, dancing in delight, appear real and perfectly clear to my senses. So now that they're here in front of us, first of all, we had to be to an exalted level even to truly invoke this presence. We, we evoked it before with the seed syllable, and then from that we instantly appear. This helps us to get out of the habit of thinking we have to be born, born, reborn, and so on. We're born as Tara, who is a being of light, and instantly. Now we've invoked Tara in front of us. She appears real and perfectly clear, and yet she's not substantial. She doesn't have you know, kidneys and blood and all that sort of thing. She's a body of light. So now we make these offerings to her. Oh, my home, together with an ocean and clouds of real and imagined offerings, I offer the mandala of my body, enjoyments, and collection of virtue. May I and all beings gather the accumulations and purify obscurations. From now until the heart of enlightenment is reached, may we never be separated from the compassion of the exalted mother. Then we chant the 21 names of the 21 Taras. Then we go back and do the offering again. We, we chant her 21 names two times all together and then go back and do the offerings because now we're offering to them. Go back and do the, the names three more times, make the offerings again, then seven times. Then we proceed on. Che, from the mandala of the hand of protector Amitabha, whence arose from the eye of the lord of the world Avalokiteshvara, the swift mother the source of an ocean of Dakinis, 21 emanations of the conqueror's compassion, the glorious swift mother, the activity of all victorious ones. To my Lama, Lord Protector, inseparable from all enlightened ones, I prostrate and pray that you bestow blessings and empowerment. From the exalted teacher's three places, the teacher as Tara, from her three places, white, red, blue, and yellow light rays radiate sequentially. They dissolve into my four places. So there now four chakras involved, including the one below the navel. Aryatara joyfully dissolves into light and then into myself. So in these empowerments, all of the toxicity and obscurations of these chakras then are completely purified. And the Buddha nature in each of those particular facets of it come fully forth. And so their hand mudras with this, again, as we say, dissolve into my four places and I obtain the four empowerments. Aryatara joyfully dissolves into light and then into myself. And then we say, I appear clearly as the accomplished, transcendent conqueress. Look upon the absolute noble mother, the unity of lucidity and emptiness. And here we have the accomplishment of the exalted marriage or sacred marriage of lucidity and emptiness. Remember, that's what everything is. Emptiness and then the luminosity, the appearance that comes from that emptiness. It's one ocean. So she has mastered that, and we are that mastery now in the form of Tara. 
We've now manifested Tara to a great extent, but we're going to even strengthen it. The Tibetan, of course, again, has the form that invokes her presence. The sounds I wrote out in English. Om dare, du dare, dure soha. So let's say that slowly. Om dare, du dare, dure soha. In order to master this, often people will recite this mantra one million times so that they really spend time with this. I knew of one Lama, he's a great Rinpoche, one of the greater ones of this time, who, when he was accomplishing a practice, would never count a mantra unless he was so moved with strong feeling that he had tears in his eyes or had goosebumps all over his body. So if we then can imagine ourselves in the realm of turquoise leaves, we are now Tara ourselves. We've evoked that, invoked it, and so on. This is now the presence of Tara. As we say this mantra, we imagine it going around clockwise inside of our hearts. And in the very center of it is the seed syllable, Dham. We're going to recite this with a lovely musical chanting of it. And the melody is the traditional chant melody, but there's uh, some flute with it. Ani Tsering Wangmo sings this. She is an accomplished Tara practitioner. She's devoted many, many years of her life to Tara and has had amazing experiences in retreat and so on doing Tara practice. So she's singing this and truly embodying Tara as she sings it. So we'll do some with her and then after a short time turn the recording off and maybe just continue a little bit ourselves. So remember, we are Tara in this mandala in the land of turquoise leaves. are green and the light rays go out from these green letters. The light rays are green and they touch all enlightened beings who appear as Tara and the light rays come back into us so that we're on this Tara wavelength sounding this Tara note. Bring your longing for the Great Mother. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
we bask in this presence, then we just say the mantra quietly or just even making the shape with our mouths to ourselves. And it's said quite rapidly once you're used to it. But just take your time with it right now and say it to yourself a few more times. Om Dare Dukare Dudiso. Again, basking in the Tara presence. The light rays also go out to all sentient beings, liberating them from suffering and bringing them to bliss, everlasting bliss. Tara has her right foot out She's her left foot in because of self-mastery and her right foot out to be instantly available to all of us who call on her. She is beloved by Tibetans because she can be called on in times of need for protection, for clearing away obstacles, and also for manifesting the things that we need. And now that we've brought her presence so clearly into the room and into ourselves, and this room is her pure land now, we Ask her for any of those things, protection, clearing away obstacles, or manifesting things that we need. And truly ask for specific things. And then, because we've come to the end of the practice, and in case there were any imperfections mentally or any other way in the practice... We say the hundred-syllable mantra of Vajrasattva, who is the archetype of clearing away any imperfections and toxicity and so on and so forth. So we recite that. We confess before the Exalted Mother. Ho, before the Exalted Mother, I confess the mass of my impurity and faults. And confession in Tibetan, the word shakva means to reveal. If you crack open a seed husk and reveal the seed, it's no longer viable. So the karmic seeds that we've planted because of confession, are no longer viable. This is the thought there. So I confess the mass of my impurity and faults. With my completely pure three doors, that's body, speech, and mind, I enter the path of timeless awareness. This is the primordial wisdom that I was talking about. I dedicate the assembly of virtue of the three times, past, present, and future, within basic space. May I quickly attain the state of the unity of the noble mother. Until enlightenment is reached, may there be the auspiciousness of never being separated from the compassionate protection of my Lama, Venerable Mother. If you have enjoyed the conversations of Lama Somo and Matthew, please visit namshock.org forward slash podcast for additional information and resources. That's N-A-M-C-H-A-K. The full record of their discussions, The Lotus and the Rose, is available on Amazon, the book also provides streaming access to full videos of their conversations, totaling almost nine hours. For more information on Lama Somo and the learning programs of Namshak, please visit namshak.org. For more information on Matthew Fox and his teachings in creation spirituality, visit matthewfox.org. This podcast was produced by Byron McCoy of Audible Productions on behalf of Namshak Publishing. Music from this episode has been used with the permission of Nawang Xiong, Sounds True, and Anonymous 4 for Harmonia Mundi. For full-length recordings by Nawang Xiong, please visit SoundsTrue.com. Videos from which this audio was taken were directed by Katie Robin Garten with Sprout Films Incorporated. Full credits are available in the show notes of this episode.